Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of It's Personal. On this episode, we have Nick Stone, New York Times bestselling author of young adult fiction. On this episode, we talk Target as a setup, healthcare system, food stamps, and first novel being hot, hot, hot garbage. Let's get into it. It's about to get personal. 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 Just got personal. Gary and I just got personal. It's personal. My name is Derek Bourne. My name is Cornelius Minor. My name is Val Brown. This is Nick Stone. Hi, I'm Donald Miller. Good? Yes. (laughs) I am so, like, technologically challenged. Um, I'm in my car because I'm like, whoop, see? Told you. I love that you're in your car right now. Yeah, I, I, so I like work. I was working. I work at Starbucks uh-huh. this morning. And so I just like came out to because it'd be loud in there. So you wouldn't have been able to hear me. You are awesome. Thank you for doing this. Oh, sure. <laughs> what time did you, you get up this morning? It's still early, right? Uh, I have small children. So they come in. My little one will come in and climb on my head at like 5.45. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you got any kids? No. Don't do it to yourself, Gary. <laughs> Save yourself, my friend. <laughs> How many do you have? Two, you said? I got two, man. And it's like having 15 sometimes. And how old They're, are they? Uh, the, the tyrant is two and a half. And the other one is six and a half. Uh-huh. He messed up this morning. <laughs> he like, I don't know, I guess he caught that. He caught an attitude with my husband. <laughs> so my husband was like, fine, make your own breakfast. <laughs> so homie had to figure out how to make his own breakfast this morning. You're bad. Good for him though, right? Did he end life, up making, life skills. Did he figure something out? Oh yeah, he went in the freezer, figured out how to use the microwave. Yep, you're good. <laughs> uh, parent, parenting 101. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Singapore. It's been good. Really, really good. We're moving next year. Um, me and my wife are moving to uh, the Philippines. So we'll be in Manila. Uh, yeah, we're super excited. Y'all not playing. Nah, still. Yeah, still... So, so definitely like spare yourself from children because you can't do all that when you got kids. <laughs> I, keep, I keep hearing that. I traveled so extensively before I had children. And now it's like, what? What do you mean I can't go to Paris this weekend? But you're like, I mean, it looks like you are constantly still traveling, though. Yeah, I'm trying to do a lot less um, this year because my kids do need a mom. Like, that is a thing that <laughs> that they have, kind of, uh, and would, would like to have around a bit more. I don't know, it's weird. Like, this is one of those, I guess we started our conversation, huh? Um, <laughs> this, this is one of those things. It's getting personal. Personal, 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 personal. Because this is one of those things where, um, where I've had to really go through a lot of fun learning of, of, of social mores and stuff when it comes to motherhood. Because, you know, I'm the, I'm the breadwinner in the family. My husband's the one at home with the kids. And, like, I've really had to come to grips with the fact that the things that I'm best at is making money. Like, it's not, I'm not, I'm really not, I, I can't cook. I literally gave myself food poisoning on Sunday, Gary. How, how, how? I, I made, I made myself 
And I thank God I'm the only one who ate it. But like I made this like shrimp fried rice thing that I was like, oh, look at me. I'm doing a thing. And the next thing I know, I'm like projectile vomiting at one in the morning. Like I can't cook. I, I And it's like I can't cook. Cleaning makes me want to like hurt somebody. So I like pay somebody else to do that. Like it, it's one of those. It's one of those situations where I've had to come to grips with the fact that I'm just not a stereotypical mother. And that's okay. Um, and that's okay. It is. And, and you know, it, it, but that's easy to say. And like, I would say, oh, oh, it's fine. This is fine. This is a little atypical, but it's fine. But I had all of this guilt uh-huh. from, you know, not being the one my kids run to when they get a boo-boo. Uh-huh. They go to dad. Of course they go to dad. That's fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm almost over it. <laughs> I mean, like thinking about, um, thinking about how different their lives are from mine when I was their age sure. is the one thing that is helpful. Like, you know, yeah. I want for nothing. Uh-huh. I'm able to, thank God, you know, able to afford good schooling and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if they need stuff, like my older kid has um, some sensory processing issues and mm-hmm. he, has, he goes to occupational therapy mm-hmm. once a week and that shit is like $200 a session. So like just knowing knowing that I can afford mm-hmm. to help them thrive is like the one thing that keeps me from being like, I'm a terrible mother, oh my God. <laughs> Nick, what did that look like for you then? As a kid, you said like, obviously being able to provide more of what, um, providing more now than basically what mm-hmm. you had when you were younger. Like what did that look like for you when you were younger then? I mean, it just wasn't the most, financially stable I did not grow up in a financially stable household like and it's, it's wild because I, I find now as I look back over work that I do that I tend to just inject my own life into everything I do which seems like it would be an obvious thing right uh-huh. um, but I think that as writers we tend to insulate ourselves from the painful stuff mm-hmm. but then it shows up on the page anyway because oh, my yeah. third book um, my third book is called Jackpot and that comes out uh, October 15th Okay. And in it, you have this girl who, you know, she and her family are kind of these poor people in this upper middle class area. And watching them struggle, like their mom works, you know, 70 to 80 hours a week just to cover rent and bills. Um, she's got some health issues because of it. And this girl, like, she even has to keep a job to help out. And, and like, that was minus the job piece because like I didn't have to have a job but like I did have that mom who worked her ass off and she Mm -hmm. was like never really around and it was still a struggle you know Mm -hmm. like we still couldn't we still couldn't afford a lot of the stuff that people around me had and we didn't have health insurance and like so just little things little things like that um that are different now uh yeah, I had, it's like I had health insurance because of my dad, mm-hmm. but my brother and sister weren't covered. It's just a bunch of little, these little things that like you don't realize are a big deal until you get grown. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dang, that was actually kind of terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so having this very different, like Gary, I cannot tell you the last time I went in Target and spent less than a hundred dollars. I, I don't, I don't even know like the last time that happened because uh-huh. anytime I go in there, if there's a kid with me, we're walking out with a toy. It, it's unavoidable. Right. Like we're either uh-huh. working out with a toy or a book. Like last mm-hmm. time I went in there, I took one of my sons, not both of them, just one of them. And in this particular target, it's a real setup because when you walk in there, you pass the toy aisle 
on the right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see how y'all do it right now. So, like, of course, you got your little kids that want to go over there. And I don't know, I guess because I had, I didn't have, um, I don't know, like yeah. that, and I got to get better about it. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, I think it's a good thing for my little black boys sure. to feel like they can have anything, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, balance, of course, is going to be important, but at the same, like whatever, like no, you can't have anything. And uh-huh. yes, the world is going to not be very kind to you. So, like, let home be a place where you mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. like you're the king of the castle, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but you, you a black man, you feel. <laughs> <laughs> you know what the crazy part is? Um, our friends who live in um, where are they at right now? They're in Jordan. They live in Jordan. Uh-huh. And they mm-hmm. just had a kid. So we were talking kind of like, eventually we would like to have kids. We got married about a year ago. And we were saying, being in this position, um, similar uh, to yourself, being able to provide. Uh, yeah. It was like, and she knows, like, I'm like, I'm going to be the, the dad who's going to be like, yeah, you want that same. Like, you want that toy. You want that book. Like, I'm probably going to give it to you. Like, it's not going to take a whole lot for me to say no. What is the, the the biggest question was what is the balance? How do you balance it with your own kid when you never had it and you're like, you know what, I want I want to give it to you. I want to give it to you, but at the same time, I want you to realize that it's privilege and you, yeah. right? Like it's. I think it's. I think it's. I don't know how because I get I'm not a, I'm not a dad, but I'm curious of how people do it because I don't want to spoil them. Regardless, do they do it is actually a better question. Yeah, I I look around a lot and I find that the kids who are assholes are assholes because their parents haven't taught them how not to be assholes. So, like, the goal is to I don't know, and it's funny, I have at least two existential crises a year, Mm -hmm. and like, this is my first one this year, and it's coming mad early. I'm like, bro, can I get like at least a couple months into the year before I start? losing my mind over the state of the universe um but with this particular one just thinking about and it was triggered by doing my taxes Uh working on my taxes and and coming coming to grips with the fact that i've entered a different tax bracket and like the government wants a lot of the money that i've earned Uh um and but like that's fine and that's as it should be and having to so I remember I was having this conversation with my husband about health insurance, right? Because he, um, I finally talked him into quitting his job mm-hmm. in, in November of last year. And of course, with him quitting his job, like now we have to pay for health care out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And like my health care, our health care is like $1,500 a month. Mm-hmm. And I was just furious about that initially. But then I thought about it and it's like, but I can afford $1,500 a month, so why mm-hmm. am I complaining about this? Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about American economics. I'm not, I, look, I'm not gonna go all nerd <laughs> economic geek right now, but the way that the American economy is set up, right? Like we're in this like, uh, this free market capitalist society where really, for most of us, the idea is to get as much money as possible. And like that is the conditioning that we have. Mm-hmm. So once you acquire wealth, you get more wealth. And yeah. that's just how our brains are set up to believe it's supposed to work. But like, when I started thinking about 
the inequality. I mean, like two years ago, I was on food stamps, right? Yeah. So like when you're dealing with knowing what it's like to be in a position where you are desperately in need of help, and then suddenly you don't need it anymore. As a matter of fact, you could probably be helping some other people. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do you transfer your understanding of what it's like to be at the bottom? How do you hold on to that as you get more, especially when the conditioning says, oh, you're good now. Like, just keep climbing, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. So yeah, my crisis lately has been about economic inequality and how the, the fact that I complained initially when mm-hmm. I thought about how much I had to pay for healthcare or how much taxes I'm going to have to pay, et cetera. Like, there are people who can't afford food and yeah. I'm complaining about having to pay taxes. Like this yeah. is how our economy is set up. Mm-hmm. So to me, I'm like, yes, if you make more money, you should pay more taxes. Like this is the thing that makes sense to me. Sure. But of course that's not, that's not how, that's not how it works. No. And it's, it's a little frustrating sometimes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering like for you, um, how much has changed? Like three years is not a long time ago, right? You yeah, still, no, not at like, all. So what what did that look like? And what was the, the how did this idea of being a writer um, come about? Like, I, I, I feel like it's not something that you just wake up and you're like, oh, I need to do this or I want to do it. I feel like it must have been something that you've, you've always had. Um, uh-huh. But for whatever reason, why did why was it and what was it that just made you just do it? So this is actually kind of a funny story. I grew up and I so I do a lot of school visits and something mm-hmm. I tell kids that makes them laugh but it's true is that like when I was a kid I was a reader and I was a liar mm-hmm. and like those two things when you put reading and lying together like that's what makes storytelling right like you get mm-hmm. an idea of narrative through the reading and then you know how to tell lies in a way that people believe mm-hmm. so I think that there has always been this kind of innate storytelling thing um inside of me but it laid dormant for a long time and that had to do with representation it had to do with not seeing um people who looked like me doing this work and writing writing the books that I like to read you know like I remember being being in elementary school I read Encyclopedia Brown books like they were going out of style mm-hmm. first of all the white boy named Leroy <laughs> where they do that um and then, and I read Mrs. Piggle Wiggle, uh-huh. and I read Harriet the Spy, and I read all of Roald Dahl's books. Uh-huh. When I hit middle school, I was reading Michael Crichton, which is weird, because that's quite a jump, um, to go from Harriet the Spy to Jurassic Park. I don't know who gave me my first Crichton book, but I was like, <laughs> that's Michael Crichton. And then I moved into Harry Potter. But the common denominator in all of these books is that there were really no black people. And I think that as a kid, when you're reading this stuff, you internalize this idea of non-existence. Mm -hmm. So when it came, and and I have a really good friend, her name is Alex Chin, and I met her. um, It's funny, when I met, when I initially met Alex, I like microaggressed the crap out of her. (laughs) We were, (laughs) we were, I'm so serious. We were in eighth grade, and it was her first day at our school, and she sat down at our table in, um, it was called probe science. It was like the quote gifted science class. It was the only yeah. black kid in the class. And because I was the only, I was the only person of color in the class, because I was the only person of color in the class, 
This girl sits across from me. Excuse me. The teacher tells us her name is, her last name is Chin. And I look at her and she just, I mean, like, you know, she just looked like a white girl. Like mm-hmm. she has freckles and like long, dark hair. But I looked at her and I like cocked my head to the side and I was like, why is your last name Chin? Just microaggression to uh-huh. the nth degree. Uh-huh. But then she told me, she was like, oh, my dad is Chinese. And we were, we were like best friends from that moment forward, right? Wow. She tells me, she tells me that I told her that I was going to be a New York Times bestseller one day. I don't oh, know wow. where I got that idea. At that point, I wasn't even writing. So I don't even know <laughs> where wow. that came from. Wow. It was some delusion of grandeur or like what? But I didn't even start until I was 28. And it just, it just took me a while to realize that it was something I could actually do. I remember mm-hmm. being in my early 20s. Um, the first time I went to Israel, I was 22. Mm-hmm. And I went to do this program, uh, this like kind of internship, this weird, it was like religion-based, uh, this internship at this, it was called a house of prayer. And every week, we would tour, we would do all this dope stuff, and then I would write this long ass email mm-hmm. with like pictures and updates and talk about all the stuff that I was learning. And I would send it out to like 100 people. And I always had people that are like, this is amazing when you're gonna write a book, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But I used to say, like, and I remember these words coming out of my mouth, I'm not creative enough to write fiction. I used mm-hmm. to say it all the time. And I had to like, not seeing it. Like I didn't see, I, I saw Alice Walker, I saw Toni Morrison. Ain't nobody trying to be Alice Walker or Toni Morrison. It's like trying to be Gandhi. Like, you can't, can't nobody be them, right? Like, cool, y'all are obviously doing amazing work. And, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I also couldn't identify with the characters in their books. Uh-huh. Um, I think the closest character in in an Alice Walker or Toni Morrison or Zora Neale Hurston book or Maya Angelou book I've ever closely, even remotely closely identified with um, was one of the women in Possessing the Secrets of Joy, Possessing the Secrets of Joy, uh, which is an Alice Walker novel. And like, Mm -hmm. but like even that, like she was older, she was African, she had subjected herself to to genital mutilation. Mm -hmm. So there was something that I could identify with in her, but like she wasn't me. What changed, what turned the tide for me? At this point, I'm, so, okay, that first summer in Israel, I met this family in the West Bank, uh, in Bethlehem, and their daughter was a year younger than me, but she couldn't, she just wanted to go to university in in the UK, but she couldn't because she didn't have a passport, and she didn't have a passport because they didn't have a country of nationality, Mm -hmm. right? So you have all these people in the West Bank, and this was something that I didn't even know was possible. Like, I didn't realize it was possible to be, like, the third or fourth generation provably the third or fourth generation in a place and have no country of nationality because the place where you live is not really a part of the country, right? Mm -hmm. So she couldn't get a passport and just hearing her story um, really opened my eyes to a lot and I wanted to tell it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I knew there was something going on. Well, it took another couple of years. Um, I read Veronica Roth's Divergent. And that was literally the first time in my entire life. I think I was, what, 26 or 27? First time in my life I read a book with a character that I could actively identify with. Where I was reading a book and this character jumped off the page and I was like, that is who I am. 
And I remember wanting, I was like, man, if they ever make this a movie, like, I wonder if I could like audition for the part. Like it was the first time that it ever happened in all of my years of reading. Mm-hmm. And then she survived the whole series. The first <laughs> time in my life I read a book where the black character lived through the whole thing. <laughs> and seeing a black character survive an apocalypse in a book wow. was what made me realize that I could actually write. Like wow. maybe I can do this. And so I started, and so I genuinely write, I started working on uh, what was my first novel. And it will never see the light of day because it was hot garbage. But that's okay. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Thank you. It was so bad, Gary. It's so bad. Like I don't even remember what that book is about. And it's crazy because it landed me an agent. The wow. book landed me an agent, but this was an agent who had never worked in YA before, so she had no idea how bad it was mm-hmm. until she sent it out. So the way the publishing process works, of course, you write a book, you get an agent. I'm making it sound so much simpler than it is, but you write a book, you get an agent. The agent submits it to editors at publishing houses. One of them will decide that they want to acquire it. Then they give you money, and you do edits, and eventually it winds up on a shelf. Well, she sent it. We were at the stage where she was sending it out to editors. And literally every editor that she sent it to was like, but what is this? Wow. Like, this is not. So she wound up pulling the submission and firing me as a client. Wow. Because she was just like, I am out of my wheelhouse here. And you should probably find a new agent. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, that shows you, though. Like, if you want to do something, you're not going to let nothing stop you. Like, I th- And I think... I think that that's an important thing to think about. Like, how bad do you want it? Uh-huh. And at that point, once I got started, once once that little lying reader woke up mm-hmm. in my belly, it was on. Like, it was like, no, I, I have to do this. There's no, yeah. I can't stop now. It is obviously what you love. Like, it's what you get fired up about, right? Mm-hmm. If you And it, I'm one of those people, like, I strongly believe if you are doing what you love, like it gets no better. Like it honestly doesn't. Yeah. Get than that. Like. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Nick Stone and myself talk personal. This is one of two part series in me and Nick's conversation. Tune in tomorrow for the second part of this series where we talk more about books, life, and everything else. Awesome.